I want to encourage you to take a moment and to think about hope for a moment. The power of hope and what happens when we're hopeless. This week I was watching a video, actually it was not this week, it was yesterday, that I watched a video, and I don't know if you guys have seen this video, but it's of the University of Oklahoma softball team, and they are the, the powerhouse softball team in the country. They interviewed the three top players on this team, and so they asked the question after they had gone through this kind of difficult part of their season, have you lost your joy? And I want to encourage you to go and find it. I can, you can find it. It's on Twitter and some other places. But their response will shock you. As they sit with their coach, the three players begin to share the gospel with the media. And they talk about the fact of where their hope actually lies, where their joy comes from. And one of the gals said, listen, even if we didn't win the national championship, it's not the end of the world. And even if we win the championship, it's not the source of our happiness. Because happiness is fleeting and circumstantial. But joy and hope are not. And she went on to share that through this, this coach, that the players that had come to hear the gospel and believe in the gospel, and the confidence there of these three top players in the country sharing the gospel of Christ, the hope they have in Jesus, and saying, listen, there isn't really, this is not important. And it was fantastic to listen to him say this, that as these, the media was trying to make this kind of the pinnacle of their careers, each of them saying, no, no, all of it means nothing if we don't have Christ. And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at the, the next part of Luke chapter 2. And there is this anticipation and this waiting that is taking place for the messianic hope that's to come. And what we have a picture here this morning is actually the presentation of salvation. A few minutes ago, we had the opportunity to dedicate the Bauer children. And in practice... We use that as a model and a guide of bringing forth children before the body, but it really actually has nothing to do with the Old Testament law. What we're going to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the very law that he is actually walking in and following. That he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And we will see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. And this is what it says. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, his man, and this man was righteous and devout 
waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town, of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Father, thank you for the wonderful blessing of your word. Thank you for the wonderful blessing of children, and specifically this child, Christ. Thank you for the redeeming work that he has done on our behalf. Thank you for the love that you have displayed towards us and the hope that you have granted through your salvation. Lord God, I pray that you would bring your spirit forth in power this morning, speaking to our hearts. May we rejoice over the salvation that you have granted. May we respond to it with repentance and faith. And may we experience the hope that you have given and desire us for us to walk in. Father, move me to the back and move you to the front. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Simply put, Jesus is the hope of God's promised salvation. Jesus is the hope of God's promised salvation. He's the hope of salvation. That's who Jesus is. Verse 21 begins, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, and the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they then went to Jerusalem. Now, it's important we stop for just a second. There's kind of a unique interlude in this passage that begins our text this morning. And it starts with the circumcision of Jesus. So eight days following his birth, he is circumcised and given the name Jesus. So tradition was the baby was not named until the eighth day following circumcision. Now, circumcision was something that was laid out in Leviticus 12 and in other areas 
We know that it's in Genesis as well. But it was the result of the Abrahamic covenant and God's covenant with Abraham in which he instructs Abraham to have the people, his people, all circumcised as a sign of that covenant. So after that takes place, we have another waiting period. And that waiting period was a time of purification for Mary. Because Mary's childbirth involved blood, she could not enter the temple. She could not participate in the sacrifices. Leviticus 12, 1-7 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean, and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days." And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. So this was this purification law that was there So we know that when they begin to go up to the temple, it's at least 33 days after the eight days of Jesus' circumcision. So this is probably six, seven weeks following the birth of Jesus that they go up to Jerusalem. So when they go up to Jerusalem, part of that process then is to bring Jesus and present him To the Lord. In Exodus 13, 11 through 12, we're told why that takes place. And it primarily takes place because it is a reminder of what had happened in the land of Egypt. That in the land of Egypt, as the Israelites were slaves and captives there, God's judgment had come across the, the Egyptians. And they were to take that blood of the lamb and place it over the doorpost, protecting their own firstborn son. Following that, in Exodus 13, 11 through 12, we're told this. It says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All that first opens the womb. So Mary and Joseph here are parents who are obedient to the law. They're devout. They're committed. They're they're walking with the Lord. And so Jesus is brought to the temple as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. They were presented to the Lord as his. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, it's important to remember here that what is actually being communicated here is actually poverty. They don't really have the means to burn a lamb, to provide a lamb. So they take the two turtle doves or, or pigeons 
and offer those as a sacrifice. It's denoting here that Mary and Joseph are not wealthy parents. They're not typically what we think of the lineage line for where the king would come from. And so they come into the temple. Now, all of these things God is preparing. It's important for us to remember that Luke is writing this passage. We know from chapter 1 to Theophilus, a government ruler, and he's writing this so that he might have an orderly account of his faith so that he might be certain of his faith. So everything that Luke is doing here is pushing Theophilus or the reader towards this point of understanding that this is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And so we're then brought to verse 25 through 26, which says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now Simeon, we know here, is a man of age. He's devout, he's faithful, he's righteous. And we're told in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Now think about that for a moment. They've been waiting 500 years to see or hear a voice, right, in the wilderness Now Jesus is born. There's still more waiting to come. The nation of Israel has been waiting over a thousand years for the promised Messiah. And Simeon, you will not die before you see the Messiah. Now think about that. We're not told specifically how Simeon is told this, but we assume that it is from the Holy Spirit, being prompted and led by the Spirit. And you have to wonder there, as the Spirit leads your own life, do you walk with certainty and confidence? Do you measure what the Lord is leading you in against His Word? See, Simeon didn't doubt this. In fact, we're told that He actually is waiting expectantly. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This idea is not a waiting with like a a position of doubt. It's a waiting that is a position of anticipation, looking forward to. Now, what is the consolation of Israel? The consolation of Israel is the messianic hope. It is the comfort and peace provided through the Messiah the promised one who would come and redeem Israel, who would come and redeem people, his people, a people for himself. And we're told that he waited as the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now think about that for a moment. I don't know if it went through his mind of, will I ever die? Right? Lord, it's time. Not yet. And you can imagine his visiting the temple 
and people wondering, really? Really? You're going to see the Messiah? We hear that all the time, don't we? I mean, we kind of live in that world today. We have the second advent of Christ where he will return for his people and restore a new heaven, a new earth, right? And what's the one wish that many of us talk about? Lord, come quickly. Lord, come before I die, right? But Simeon's been told, before you die, you will see the Messiah. What a powerful position. But you wonder for a moment, he's walking in faith. But when you can't see the end, the only thing that is empowering him, and it's mentioned three times, is the Holy Spirit. You see, waiting expectantly on God only occurs with faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. Waiting expectantly on God only occurs through faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you just blindly say, eh, you know, I I believe it to be true, and you let it go, after 30 days, you will begin to wonder. After 10 days, you will begin to wonder. Your faith will have no power, and the waiting becomes torment rather than one of anticipation and expectation. It's a hopeless waiting rather than a hopeful waiting waiting. The only way that we can wait upon the Lord with hope is through faith that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We live in a culture that is filled with impatience, filled with it. We ourselves might be highly impatient, but we wait on the Lord with expectation. We wait on the Lord with hope not with despair. We trust that His way is better than our way and that God will do the miraculously when we least expect it. And that God's miracles don't often mean that I'm most comfortable. God's miracle means that He has a path of deliverance that is far greater than what I can see. So in verse 27, it says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon discerns the salvation of God who is Jesus. Simeon discerns it. Has he discerned it? He discerns it through the Holy Spirit. Faith empowered by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that opens Simeon's eyes to the truth. And so what we see is that God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus. God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. Well, what's the first part of that promise that's fulfilled? Well, we could momentarily say the first part of that promise is that he would not let Simeon die without seeing the Messiah. And that would be easy and we would be done. 
But there's greater news than that. Not that God just personally fulfilled his promise to Simeon, but that he corporately fulfills his promise to a nation. All of God's promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. You see, salvation is available to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. No longer is salvation available simply to the Jew through the law of the Lord and rituals and walking and trying to appease God. But now there is one who has done the appeasement for us, who has taken the wrath of God upon himself, the rightful penalty of the sin, that is death, our sin, placed on a cross, then rising again on the third day and overcoming the power of that death, giving us life in him. Salvation is no longer given simply to the Jew who follows the law, but it is given to the Jew and Gentile alike who have faith in Jesus. You see, God promised Simeon two things. One, that he wouldn't die before seeing the Messiah, and two, that the promised Messiah would come. And he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. God's salvation is not hidden from you. Now, there may be eyes that are veiled. But God has made his salvation known through Jesus. We don't have to guess. Salvation is no longer a guessing game of following the law of the Lord and making sure that, that my sacrifices are lined up perfectly and everything's been atoned for and all the work of the law, which was never meant to save, only show you the power of your own sin and that you couldn't do it on your own. You see, the purpose of the law was to expose our sin, not to bring us to a place of righteousness. The law can't do that. And it is Jesus who does that work on our behalf. It is Jesus who goes to the cross for our sake. And it is Jesus whose righteousness we are granted. You see, his salvation is made known through Jesus. It's not the result of man or man's works, and it's not about keeping the law. Now, God didn't come through Jesus to abolish the law, but Jesus was able to keep the law perfectly and therefore become a perfect sacrifice for us. You see, whether somebody responds to the gospel is irrelevant. God has still made his gospel known, the good news of his salvation in Jesus. See, salvation is no longer simply available to the Jew, but now in Christ it's available to all. And he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Brian Bell points out, who may have admission to the kingdom now? Samaritans, pagans, Jews, publicans, sinners, outcasts, respectable people, poor, rich, women, men, children. They all have access to salvation. 
We all have access to salvation. He continues, light dispels darkness to show them their way back to God. That's what Jesus does. He shows us that there is no pathway to the Father except through Him. That I cannot make myself righteous enough. And notice the words that He gives here. He actually shares that He's prepared a people. He said, You have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is not our salvation that we've prepared. It is the salvation that God has prepared for us. When we try to do it on our own, when we try to be approved by God through our own works, we are changing the very definition of the salvation that God has given to us. We are telling God how He should save us. It's kind of like a child drowning in a river who's tangled in the weeds. That child desperately wants to keep its head above water. But for a moment, that rescuer may have to push him down to release the tension of those weeds and those, those vines that are wrapped around that child's leg to be able to break them free to bring them back to the top. Now, if left to the child, it would lead to their own destruction but if left to the rescuer, it will lead to life. That is the truth of our own salvation. Jesus is our rescuer. He is our life. It doesn't matter what we want and what we think might be the best way to try to prove we are worthy. God has already said we are not, but that he is. It's a salvation that's been prepared for us. So speaking of this Messiah... Speaking of this promised Messiah and showing us that this salvation is available to all, it actually is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 6 through 9, which says this, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor I praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So when Jesus is presented in this temple, and Simeon is holding him up, he is declaring that he is the light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. Glory of Israel. Israel had been given this Messiah, but this Messiah was not to be just something that Israel held on to. It was to go to the world. And that is exactly what Jesus has offered. He is the light of revelation. He exposes the need for a Savior to not just Jews, but to people all alike, Jew and Gentile alike. This is why John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the salvation that we have. That Jesus lights our way. 
He is the source of our hope. Our hope does not come from ourselves, but it comes from Jesus. And the hope of salvation is only found in Jesus. Now notice Joseph and Mary's response. It says they marveled at what was said about Jesus. Well, there's a lot of marveling, isn't there, in this, this part of the book? Mary marveled the week before. She treasured the principles in her own heart. Elizabeth marveled. Mary marveled again when she was spoken to by the angel. Do we still have this same awe for the salvation of God? Or or is the salvation of God so familiar that it's lost its awe factor in our life? You see, Jesus and his life, his work, his salvation should produce in us an awe that doesn't burn out. It's a light that should continue to burn bright. Too often the gospel is spoken of something that is just that occurs when a person comes to salvation. The gospel does not stop at the point that you repent and believe on Jesus. The gospel is what I need and you need every single day. The gospel is the same gospel that I am still worthless apart from Jesus. That I'm still hopeless apart from Jesus. It is the gospel that keeps affirming me. It's his life in me. The circumstances of this life are not hopeless. And if they become hopeless to you, the light is burning out. You've lost your sense of awe for the redeeming work of what God has done and is doing and will do. I shared it last week, but I'll say, share again, and that is the best you have in this life or the worst that you have in the life is the worst that you will ever experience in the totality of your own life if you know Jesus. This will be as a splinter to what is coming eternally in terms of joy and hope and glory. But to the unsaved, the best you have in the life is the best that it gets. It'll get far worse. The hope of salvation and the light of Jesus continue to go to the gospel every single day. It is to be the light of revelation to to the Gentile and for the glory of Israel. So, after they marvel, it says that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many people in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's the second thing about that gospel, about the gospel being fulfilled in Jesus. People will either reject or receive him, exposing the true condition of their heart. People will either reject or receive him, exposing the true condition of their heart. This salvation that was being proclaimed 
being presented really for the first time in the temple, need to know that people will either reject or receive him and that that rejection or that reception will expose the truth of their own heart. It's easy for people to think that they are more humble than they are. Your rejection of Jesus exposes, as Scripture says, the pride of your heart. The lack of belief in Christ and the truth of His Word. Your reception of Jesus exposes the humility of the heart to say, I need, I need you, Jesus. Salvation is not a work of self, but is solely a work of God. And that doesn't mean that God's done working on the humility in our heart. That's the very beginning point. But the starting point is the recognition that I do need a Savior, that I do need a Lord, and that I do need His salvation. You see, when we reject Jesus and we say, well, I think I might be good enough to get into heaven, we are redefining, once again, God's plan of redemption. We are redefining it and making it into our old mold. One of the things we hear about today is it's safe right now. We live in a culture that is what I would call somewhat super spiritual. And when I say super spiritual, I'm not talking godliness. We hear the terminology universe spoken about all the time. Well, this must be what the universe has for me. I asked the universe. If you mention God, God's a safe word to mention often. Lots of people believe in God. But you mention Jesus? What is it that they want to ban? They want to ban prayers in government that end within the name of Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus, Jesus is the one who is offensive. Because Jesus is the one that says, apart from you, you can't have relationship with God. And Jesus is the one who is saying, listen, apart from me, you have no hope and joy. You have no eternal life, and you have no life abundantly now. It is why he said that he's been appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. David Guzik puts it this way. He says, Jesus is like a magnet that is attractive to some, but others are repelled from him. He adds, never does one hear the gospel and not fall or rise under the hearing of it. Neutrality is forever impossible. I love that. Every time that you are confronted with Jesus, you are confronted of whether you are going to rise with him, meaning you are going to receive him and the grace that is being offered, or whether you're going to fall, you're going to reject him. You see, some will reject Jesus and some won't, but either way, their hearts are going to be exposed. And this sign, then, that Jesus is, is uh, it is a sign that is opposed. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is literally a target. And evil 
targets that target. That target is bold. You have to make a decision about what you're going to do with it. Either trip over it or you acknowledge it. Isaiah 53, 2 through 5 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. This is the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that, would, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus, a sign opposed, one that was directed towards him. For what purpose? To expose hearts. We have a a Messiah who is offensive. As believers, we need to be careful that we don't become offended when people are offended by us. The sharing of the gospel is offensive. It's designed to be such. The scripture says it will be. Yes, it's a message of hope, but to the lost, it's folly, it's foolishness. We're told that in 1 Corinthians, that I preach Christ crucified, right? Foolishness, what to the Jew? Folly to the Gentile. That's what's happening here. And so when somebody reacts to Jesus, we continue to pray for that person, we continue to proclaim as the Lord leads, and we thank Jesus for affirming his word. Why would Jesus be offended otherwise? Why should he be offensive to others? I mean, if he's a good moral man and just simply a good moral man, there should be no offense taken. But Jesus never claimed to be just simply a good moral man. He claimed to be the way and the way to have a relationship with the Father. That the only way to have a relationship with God is through Christ. That is our hope. You see, when we lose sight of that, then we become discouraged in our world. The hope of salvation is that it's a salvation plan that God has put together, that it's provided and fulfilled in through Jesus, and that Jesus himself is exposing the hearts of men. Some who will receive and some who will reject. And that he's, his own very presence will be offensive. It's good to know I think sometimes as believers, we need to stop fighting for acceptance. Rather, we need to fight to be faithful to God's call. To faithfully proclaim even when it's not popular. To be faithful to the Lord as he leads, knowing that a harsh reaction is the reaction of the world to a Messiah who's been offered God has given this so that we would not be surprised. 
We spend more time talking about Jesus than we do about God. Because it is Jesus that exposes the hearts and minds of men, of humanity. Well, with that, he tells Mary that this Jesus, who is a sign of offense, and he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. Persecution of Christ will lead to sorrow. Persecution of Christ will lead to sorrow. But sorrow does not mean hopelessness. Sorrow is sadness at the condition of man and condition of those that we love. Don't confuse sorrow with hopelessness. We can be hope-filled and yet still have sorrow. John 15, 18 through 21 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Wow. Wow. This salvation, this salvation that's being presented in the temple, it's not all happy things. He's saying, there will be sorrow. But it's going to be worth it. Because the hope of salvation is far greater than the sorrow of this life. But recognize that the salvation that we have in Christ does not remove sorrow from this life. But that sorrow can be endured in the way that Mary endured it. In the face of the persecution of her own son. Her faithfulness did not wane because her hope was greater than her sorrow. So, we then move on to this story of Anna. And it's a brief story. It says, And there was prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She would advance in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Hearing the thing, knowing God's promise has been fulfilled, knowing God's promise has been fulfilled, compels us to proclaim Jesus to those waiting for the redemption. Knowing God's promise has been fulfilled compels us to proclaim Jesus to those waiting for redemption. If we know salvation and we know the salvation that is afforded through Jesus Christ, then God is compelling us to proclaim this truth. Anna proclaims the truth immediately. She does not delay. She doesn't say, ah, give me some time to develop a relationship with these people. She proclaims it. And it doesn't mean that she was like a bowl in a china closet, but it does mean that she lived here and she went here with an intention to bring the gospel. 
Do we have that same intention when we are around unbelievers? When we know that they need redemption and they're waiting for redemption, do we interact with them with intentionality? Do we pray for them in this way? When was the last time that you've intentionally prayed for somebody and shared your faith with somebody? The point is, is that if I have awe over the gospel, if I have awe over Jesus and his promised salvation, the hope of that salvation, it should move me. to be expressing the gospel of Christ. You see, seeing and hearing about Jesus, our Messiah, should move us to proclaim Christ the Messiah. Now, I want to leave us with two observations as we wrap up this morning. Why did God use Simeon and Anna? And I believe it's for two reasons. The two reasons that really come to mind here are this. One, Simeon and Anna are not young people. God is using people of all ages here to proclaim his gospel. And that would be an easy line. And I think that there is truth to God reminding people of the value across all ages of using those people to proclaim his truth. We've seen angels, we see elderly people, we will see younger people. But Anna and Simeon were both devout followers of the law. Simeon was devout, righteous, the scripture tells us, waiting for the day that he could die. You can almost imagine him going, your turn, I'm done, and we don't have any idea how quickly he died afterwards. But there was a kind of a sigh of relief, you can sense. We're told that Anna is 84 years old. And that she's lived that life almost since the significant part of her life as a widow. Not leaving the temple. Worshipping, fasting, and praying night and day. Luke here is declaring... To Theophilus, I want you to know with certainty that your faith can be trusted. These two people, neither priests, but one a prophetess and another a devout, faithful man who had been waiting for years for the coming Messiah, confirm the Messiah when he comes into the temple. And it is as if God is declaring, yes, this Jesus is the Messiah. Wait no longer. And to those who are Jewish, who are waiting for a coming Messiah, I would proclaim to you this, that God's word says that Jesus is the Messiah and it is confirmed by faithful servants of the law. That's for us too. We need to know that when we speak to people waiting for the Messiah, we saw in his birth that it was confirmed by the angel, both on heaven and on earth. And now we see it confirmed in the temple by those who faithfully walked in the law. So may that be our heart this morning, to be a people who faithfully walk in the hope of Christ's salvation. And may we be a people who present his salvation 
bring it before others and may it be brought before us daily so that we might stand in awe and that awe might move us to proclaim his truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your goodness this morning. Thank you for the hope that you've granted us through salvation. And may our focus not be on the things of this life, but on the hope that you have granted us through the work of Jesus. Thank you for fulfilling your promises in Jesus for a Messiah who would redeem and overcome the world, giving us life eternal with you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.